have needs and desires and seek to discover our own erotic journey, you've come to the right place. This is Seek, Discover, Create with Lexi Silver, presented by SDC. In the next hour, we're here to answer your burning questions about relationships, sexuality, and health from the leading sex experts and professionals. Now, here is your host, Lexi Silver. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to SDC Presents Seek, Discover, Create. I'm your host, Lexi Silver. And as usual, we have a very lectual show for you all today. I hope you've enjoyed your holidays so far and are gearing up for a sexy New Year's Eve tonight. So when I reflect on 2019, I am shocked by the incredible response that I've had to this podcast. So thank you all for tuning into my show and exploring your lectuality with me. To wrap up this year, tonight I'll be featuring highlights from some of the most popular shows all about hot sex. We're going to explore some of the most taboo topics, including butt stuff like pegging and prostate play, using cannabis to enhance sex, what BDSM and kink relationships are really like, and how to have an orgy. Now, before we kick off this episode, I want to thank our sponsor, STC.com, your and my expert source of exclusive information about sex, health, and relationships, where you can also access the world's largest lifestyle dating platform. Use my special promo code 7070 to get two Two months free at sdc.com. That's 7070 to get two months free at SDC. Let's get this episode started. Listen to my chat about pegging and prostate play with Sunny Megatron and Ken Melvoinberg. Enjoy. We're going to have fun today and we're going to talk about butt sex with my favorite dynamic duo, Sunny Megatron and Ken Melvoinberg of American Sex Podcast. I'm always getting questions from my listeners and keep them coming because I do love to hear from you. And what I seem to be getting asked about most lately from men is about butt stuff. So people are asking me things like, what are pegging? How can I melt my prostate? How can I tell my partner I want to try anal sex? And one thing that I seem to be hearing way too often lately is, does pegging make me gay? So we're going to talk a little bit more about that and unpack all of these very deep questions. So I'm enlisting the help of two sex ed superheroes, Ken Melvoinberg and Sunny Megatron. I have the pleasure of having Sunny Megatron back on my show, this time accompanied by her husband, co-host, and partner in crime, Ken Melvoinberg. In addition to co-producing Showtime's Sex with Sunny Megatron, these two initially gained recognition writing and teaching about everyone's favorite subject and mine, sex. In their sellout workshops, their unique brand of edutainment, and their combined 25-plus years of sexuality teaching experience put students at ease. Their latest endeavor is American Sex Podcast that features an eclectic mix of guests from all walks of life. American Sex Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms or at americansexpodcast.com, so you definitely want to give that a listen right after you listen to this show. On a more personal note, this dynamic duo are married, parents, occasionally ethically non-monogamous, and lifestyle BDSM enthusiasts. Welcome, Sunny and Ken. Thank you for being on my show today. Hello. Right. Hi. Actually, you just you unlocked an achievement because you've said Ken Melvin Berg successfully three times in a row. Or oh, more. yeah? That's, that's an amazing <laughs> task. He's usually Kevin Melvin Berg. No! <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So we're starting off on the right foot, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> 
Well, glad I could uh, I could get something right today. It's been one of those days, so that's very good. <laughs> Let's hope that's a uh, you know, sign of things to come for this episode, because we are going to get pretty personal and pretty deep talking about some anal sex, some butt play, and I'm very happy to have both of you, so thank you both. Oh, okay. you're totally welcome. Happy to do it. I love talking about butt stuff. It's my forte. It's, it's something we can really get behind. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love welcome it. to this episode on butt puns. No, just kidding. That stinks. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys both get tons of questions too when it comes to butt sex and we've talked about this many times before but I do want to use some of your expertise in here because you definitely have more experience and more practical knowledge on pegging and prostate play than I do so how can and why does anal stimulation feels so good. What's going on back there? Go ahead, Sonny. Oh, me. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you know, one great thing about butt stuff is the vast majority of people have butts. It's not a gender the, thing. Wait, the vast majority? Everyone has yes. butts. <laughs> but it's not a gender thing. It's, it's not dependent on For your sexual orientation. We apologize. So, it's, not, it's not dependent on your sexual orientation. It's a body part that we all can play with and for a lot of us it feels good yeah there's personal preference and some people genuinely aren't into it but I find more people they might be into it if they got rid of their preconceived notions Mm -hmm. they think butt stuff means so the butt is packed with tons of nerve endings. Um, and when you look at, you know, just just what I call like, you know, knocking on the front door, you don't even have to go in there. That external <laughs> sphincter alone is packed with so much sensation and so much you can do without, you know, pardon the pun, but quote, going deep. So I hear you. And sometimes you don't actually need to penetrate to get some really good stimulation going. Mm-hmm. So how is anal pleasure different for people with prostates versus people without prostates? I think I'll take this one. Okay. Um, or at least I can start and then you can add in later. Um, so for people with prostates, I'm speaking here for you. The prostate is sort of the equivalent of our G-spot. In fact, one of the things that was uh, sort of interesting about my personal sexuality, my first sexual partner was a carrot with a condom on the end. So <laughs> I could actually try and do and figure out where my prostate was. Was it pointy at the end though? Like, it was curved. No, it was curved okay. a little bit at the end. So <laughs> oh, it had like the it. angle. Yeah, oh. yeah, it had the angle and stuff. I got it like a, one of the things you get from the damaged vegetable company. I looked at that kind of thing. <laughs> And then I actually knew enough because like I was afraid to go like, because first of all, I was young. I was under 18 years of age. Uh, I didn't have access to sex toys. I didn't have that much access to sex education because you're talking 19, like 81, 82. So, because I'm ancient, I'm 50. So one of the things is that the prostate is a periurethral gland that like its job is sort of to like make the liquid that goes into semen and you can double or even triple your orgasm if you play with it. Now, having a prostate orgasm is very different than having an anal orgasm. There's, they're two very separate and distinct orgasms because as you mentioned, Lexi, you got to kind of get up there and go towards, if you were lying on your back, go towards the belly button, uh, sort of like inching up a little bit and edging it and taking your time and doing it is what's called prostate play or prostate milking. And it's actually probably the single most important sex act that somebody with a prostate can know because you have a 30% chance of lowering your rate of getting prostate cancer. Hmm. That's especially important if you uh, have any black heritage or Jewish heritage because uh, we tend to be more prone to getting prostate cancer. The reason that it sort of eliminates the chance what you're doing when you're expressing that periurethral gland is you're, you're oxygenating it and you're getting rid of all the bacterial, fungal, 
and bacterial contaminants that are inside. Now, I know that's not terribly sexy, and you're like, if you were to swallow a load from a prostate massage, <laughs> you're going to start thinking, you're like, oh my God, your stomach acid Did I just everything. drink cancer? <laughs> <laughs> Full of carcinogen. It's delicious. But health is sexy. It is. It's very healthy, sexy. And it will increase your immune system all the way around if you have at least one orgasm every single week. Mm -hmm. Doesn't even have to be every day, but every week. And, you know, prostate milking is something that your urologist can do, but it's, you know, urologist isn't going to blow you and like take you out to dinner first or whatever. It's very clinical. Let me have their card. Yeah. So this is something that you can make a part of your sex life, make it very erotic, make it fun, and it can also have potential health benefits. And thank you very much for differentiating between uh, anal orgasms and prostate orgasms too, because a lot of people seem to think that they're the same thing. So what is the difference between, I guess, pegging and prostate play? Can you engage that? How do you engage the prostate during pegging? I'll give you the, the origin or the definition of pegging. So Pegging is the name for this phenomenon that we didn't have a name for before. It was actually uh, Dan Savage who realized like, hey, there's this sexual trend, I guess you would say. Like people have been doing it, but as more people in pop culture do it, more people hear about it, more people want to do it, where they're like, they're straight couples where the guy wants to be fucked in the ass mm-hmm. with a dildo. And he's like, I'm hearing from more and more people that are into this and it does not have a name so he did basically a contest for all of his listeners and followers or whatever and so that's how they came up with the name pegging and now that it has a name something we can google something for search engine optimization it it spread like wildfire not only on the internet but the more people hear about it the more it gets demystified the more people are like I've always thought about that, but I thought it was weird and nobody did it. But now I'm reading Cosmo and it says that people do it. So then they start doing it and it grows like a big snowball. And it's a huge search term in porn too. It's been growing and growing and growing and growing. Because even though some people still have this taboo idea about the partner with the prostate getting pegged, a lot of people are into it, even if they're not going to admit it. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's interesting being someone who is normally the penetrated Mm -hmm. become the penetrator, you know, and it adds another element. Like I've pegged um, cis guys who identify as submissive. And because of our preconceived notions about what it means to be the person to be penetrated, we think that equals you are submissive. It does not. Mm -hmm. Your sex doesn't does not dictate what role you're playing, but that's what we've all been programmed to think. So in that case, when I was pegging people who identified as submissive men, it was a little bit easier. Where with Ken, we're both dominant. So it adds a whole other like it's a whole other like kind of mind fuck you know, that goes against everything you've been conditioned to think. Right. Um, so that was kind of a, a, there was a learning experience, but being the one penetrating and also penetrating such a sensitive area because yeah, the butt's delicate. You can tear something in there. Yeah. It's curved. So it's not like you go straight in. You got to be careful and work with that curve or you could hurt somebody. It's like using one of those squatty potties. Yeah. <laughs> and like when you're doing that for the first time and you've never done it before and you don't know what you're doing it's really intimidating and it's kind of scary you know it's like uh, am I hurting you uh, am I hurting you uh, is that okay like, 
<laughs> you know, so that took a while to get over. You know, I wanted to add one little thing there. Speaking sure. of sporty potties, the number one best tip to get something in your butt if you are uncomfortable is to simply raise your knees to your chest. And what you're doing is it's sort of like aligning for a squatty potty when those are those devices that you put under your toilet and you raise your legs and it makes it so that you can like shit straight down instead of like at an angle and go all over the place. So it's easier to poop. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with anal. If your legs or if your knees are up near your chest, it straightens out your colon a little bit and you can go into a straighter angle with much more comfort. Ooh, good tip. Something you mentioned when you are first starting to get comfortable with doing butt stuff is getting rid of those stigmas, right? I often get asked by heterosexual cis guys, does getting peg make you gay? And I, I mean, I know my answer and I think it's like the craziest question, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. I'm sure you've heard this thing many, many, many times before too. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting that the, it's 2019 now and most of the people that are millennials or younger don't have that stigma. Uh, statistically, we're finding out they do more anal play. They do more, they identify as queer more, even though they you know may not be bisexual. They're just using it as a term for alternative sexuality. Uh, analingus, tossing the salad is incredibly popular amongst younger folks. And, um, us older folks had that stigma a little bit more. If you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, if you were a hetero guy, seeming gay was a huge issue at that point or things that would make you feel gay. I think that now we've progressed a little bit more beyond that. It, you know, Every year, it's a little bit less stigma. Mm-hmm. But my stock answer to that question is usually, unless you are a giant dildo in love <laughs> with another giant dildo, you are not a homosexual. You are a human that is actually just using a toy. And I understand that it's dick-shaped may even look exactly like a dick, that does not mean that you're gay. What it is, is it's just a great introduction to something with so many nerve endings and such a better orgasm. It just feels as an act that's so dirty and taboo. And that's really where it comes from. Um, We were tracing, uh, like I read some articles where they were tracing the roots of where this, and I forget where the article was from, uh, but a lot of it was from more conservative areas of the United States. So Mm -hmm. places that are deeply Uh, Republican, primarily the American South, places like Utah in the United States, uh, were all places that were tended to be a little bit more conservative. So it made it a little bit more taboo because they were looking at downloads of porn and more pegging (laughs) porn was seen in those places. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a direct correlation between the taboo porn you're watching, what the secret act is, and the shame that's involved with it. And when I talk to people like this, I do make light at first, but I make them realize that like what you're doing is not loving another human. And first and foremost, I had that same stigma and I don't want to make it seem like I didn't. I absolutely did. That's why I stuffed a carrot up my ass because I was concerned (laughs) that people would think something of me that was, you know, absolutely something that I'm not. And once you come to terms with that and you overcome the shame and you just talk about it, communication is key for anything to do with sex. And if you're doing the sex act outside of yourself, if you have a partner that you think may be concerned with it, talk to them first, just don't spring it on them. Yeah, uh, Springing it on them might not be the best way to go about it, even if they're you know very open and receptive to it, because you might violate their consent. You just don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like we were saying before in the last segment, just like uh, whatever sex act you engage in doesn't dictate whether you're a submissive or a dominant. You know, you can be dominant and still, quote, bottom. Uh, a sex act also doesn't dictate your sexual orientation unless you want a dick shoved up your ass that's attached to a man. That you love. <laughs> you know, you're not gay. It's, you know, so um, just like you think of straight women out there. 
are they lesbians because they like to be eaten out or fingered? No, that's ridiculous. We wouldn't think that. And so it's the same thing. And it all traces back to, you know, how we regard our gender roles in society and the double standard when it comes to sex. I mean, think about it. Oh, yeah. Women must be submissive. These are all, you know, myths and things we believe. There's two words that describe it directly, and you just defined that word, and it's toxic masculinity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that women must be submissive. Uh, Men can have all the sex, and they're like, whoa, you go, boy. And if women have a lot of sex, they're filthy, sleazy, you know, promiscuous, that men must be dominant. They must be the giver. They must top, they must, you know, and none of that's true. It's all stereotypes that, like Ken said, tie back to the patriarchy and toxic masculinity. And I know for some people, those words make your eyes glaze over. and You're like, oh, no, we're trying to be sexy. And you just said patriarchy. (laughs) Um, But it really, it does really all tie back to that. You know, when you're enforcing tough guy stereotypes, it makes it difficult to be sort of open and like be a little bit uh, gentler in like, cause like what you want to be gentle with the person that's shoving something up your ass, especially <laughs> if they have it on, strapped onto their hips and they've got a generous booty. Like those are things that you want to make sure that you are vulnerable with that person and you trust the person. So it defies those masculine stereotypes, which is why we use those words. Forget about the terms PC and everything else. Just, you know, you have to accept the fact that there is a way that things are set up in one way and it's just not that way in reality. I hope you all got a bit more insight about anal pleasure and what you can experience if you just get out there and experiment. You could find out more about Sunny and Ken at americansexpodcast.com, which you can also download anywhere you get your podcasts. So when my show comes back in the new year, I'll be resuming my Letters to Lexi segment, so be sure to send in your questions. During Letters to Lexi, I give you the shameless, no-bullshit answer your friends might not have the titanium ovaries or balls of steel to tell you. No question is ever too taboo or queer or weird, so don't be shy. I love getting messages from you, so write in to me at Lexi at SDC.com and connect with me on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Lexi Silver, that's Alexi with an I, Silver with a Y. Now let's explore cannabis with the canisexual Ashley Manta. Here we go. Joining me today is Ashley Manta, self-proclaimed canisexual, which is also the name of her brand. I love it. And the authority on how to mindfully combine sex and cannabis. Sexual Health Magazine called her America's High Priestess of Pleasure and featured her on the cover of their recent January issue, so you should check that out. She was also the featured expert on Viceland TV's Stone Sex episode of Split Ever, hosted by Carly Sertino. We're going to talk all about the deliciously responsible ways you can mix cannabis and sex and attain new heights of ecstasy. So today's episode is going to be lots of fun with my special guest, Ashley Manta, the canisexual. Ashley is also a professional sex educator and coach and has taught many retreats, including the Glowing Goddess Getaway, Healing Inside Out, and Intimate Health's Punani Power Yoga Retreat. She's also been nominated for multiple awards in both the adult and cannabis industries. And in addition to her bi-weekly blog for Dope Magazine, her work has been pro- filed in Huffington Post and referenced in the London Times, Newsweek, and LA Weekly, to name a few. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
Oh, well, I think we are going to have quite a tasty show for people today. I've been getting so many questions about what is, you know, the link between cannabis and sex. I think you are the perfect person to help answer all of these questions today. I am so happy to offer any assistance that I can (laughs) and assure people that they are in good hands and they can make really responsible, informed choices. (laughs) Well, perfect. So let's start with how did you become a canisexual, as you put it? That's such a great question. I have been a sex educator for the last 12 years, and I really got my start doing sexual violence prevention education, which is a pretty far cry from sex and cannabis. Um, It was incredible work, and I loved it, but it was draining. And so after a while, I burned out and really started focusing more on the pleasurable side of sex, body confidence and communication and toys and lubes and things that make you feel good. And then when I moved to California in 2013 from Pennsylvania, which was at the time a prohibition state, I had access to medical cannabis for the first time. And that made such a difference in being able to go into a dispensary and say, I want to feel this, this, and this. I don't want to feel this or that. What can you do for me? And it was around that time in 2014 that I found Foria, which was a THC-infused oil designed for vulvas to enhance pleasure and decrease discomfort. And that was the product that allowed me to have penetrative sex without pain for the first time in well over a decade. And I was like, holy shit, there are not sexuality professionals talking about sex and cannabis right now. I feel like I need to do this like for the world. And so that became my niche and my brand. And now I am America's high priestess of pleasure, which is pretty much the coolest title ever. (laughs) So that's super interesting. And I actually do get some questions from people with vulvas who are have experienced pain almost their entire lives. It's not possible to make it a physically pleasurable experience. So have you worked with a lot of people who have also dealt with, let's say, vaginismus, who have uh, noticed that using uh, maybe THC-infused lubricants uh, or oils have really helped them with their sex life? Absolutely. I have not worked with as many directly in a coaching capacity because that's a little bit more, I would refer someone to a pelvic health specialist for that concern. Like I would want to give them some like tips, but that's, that's something that I would want them to see a medical professional for. But what I have been able to do through working with Foria is hear a lot of their patient stories. And the things that I've heard are really quite remarkable of people who have had penetration, pain with penetration for a really long time, whether it be through vaginismus or vulvodynia or the like, and they found relief. Um, Also folks with endometriosis have said that it's been really helpful for them in using uh, their suppositories for cramps and and like any kind of pelvic pain can really distract from your ability to be present during sex and enjoy yourself. And so using cannabis in that way, knowing that it's not going to cause an intoxicating or a head high effect, you can really just like confidently take care of your body and and promote pleasure without having to worry about getting stoned. Everything, you know, we, we were just talking about is very specific. We're talking about actual pain, but there are other reasons that people tend to want to try to use cannabis. Sometimes it's just a matter of wanting to spice up their sex life. So why are people trying this out more? Like, what is this curiosity? Where does it stem from? I think the curiosity comes partially from the taboo. It's been stigmatized and shamed for so long and people tend to be curious about the things that 
are, you know, naughty, that are subversive in some way. Mm. And so I think there's curiosity there. And I think people are drawn to plants. Like they want natural ways of working with their bodies that are plant-based versus pharmaceutical-based. And there's just something about cannabis as a creative uh, enhancer. You know, musicians, artists throughout history have used this plant to really tap into like source consciousness and their inner selves and their creativity. And so it seems like a very logical choice. Plus, I've heard anecdotally that it's has been used back for at least 5,000 years, sex and cannabis, as an aphrodisiac. Well, I don't like to use the word aphrodisiac, but like as a sexual uh, enhancer or catalyst for sexual energy. This is very exciting. Some of these trends that are happening right now um, that people are trying uh, this natural source that seems to be working in a lot of different ways for them. What forms of it can I use to enhance my sex life? Great question. And what I find with folks is cultivating an awareness of where you are in your body, where you are mentally, and then having a sense of where you want to get to. Mm. Like, what are you going for? Do you want heightened tactile sensations? Do you want more creativity? Do you want to be a little bit more verbal and, and, you know, letting the dirty talk flow more seamlessly? What is it exactly that you're going for? Because cannabis can really help address the things that get in the way of pleasure, connection, and intimacy, like pain, like shame and anxiety and stress. But it also can be, as you said, an enhancer where it's adding creativity and, and uh, more of a dynamic experience that where normally it might be just kind of a typical, like we do the same things every time. So cannabis can help kind of interrupt that a little bit so that you're thinking outside the box What do you think is a huge misconception when it comes to using cannabis for sexual purposes? The biggest misconception out there is that you have to be high. Mm. 100% do not. There are so many methods of consuming cannabis um, that don't cause intoxicating effects, whether they be from THC in its raw form, which is THCA, which doesn't cause psychoactive effects, or using CBD-rich products, or using topicals, or balms, and things like of that nature, to, of course, the things like Foria, where it's just applied topically to the vulva. Lots of ways to use cannabis that don't get you high. Baths, oh my God, that is my favorite thing to tell people if they're new and they're kind of like dipping a toe in the sex and cannabis pool. All right, here's what you do. You take whichever partner is more objectively stressed (laughs) or has a more difficult time like accessing (laughs) pleasure and intimacy and you draw them a hot bath and you pop in a bath bomb and let them soak for like 15 minutes. And while they're doing that, which will not get them high, you go to the bedroom and you clean up the laundry and you light some candles or put on some mood lighting put on a playlist on Spotify, like make it sexy, create your sexual den where you're going to have your play space. And then your partner comes out, you kind of dry them off, maybe give them a massage and see where the night takes you. Like that is setting yourself up for success from every metric I can think of. Cannabis is so great for helping to get people out of their heads and into their bodies because I am definitely someone who has a noisy brain. My brain does not stop and it does not shut up. And it is intense. And sometimes like, I will actually have to articulate to my boyfriend, like, I'm really stuck in my head right now. I need help like, getting back into my body. And sometimes like, cannabis even isn't quite enough. 
especially for me because I have a really high tolerance and I need to do some like embodiment grounding kinds of exercises. But for cannabis, it is useful. And especially for people with a much lower tolerance than I have, it's very easy to just use a minuscule amount and have really wonderful effects. And you can choose, like, is this something where you want to have that head high experience? Like, do you want to feel a little bit more spacey in your head in addition to feeling more relaxed in your body? Or do you just want body relaxation and a very clear head? And so you get to kind of make that call for yourself based on your situation. But what I tell people is like, go out and try different strains. Like I can't tell you what the best strain or cultivar is for getting you out of your head because it's going to be different for everybody. I can tell you that like a CBD rich strain is going to tend to be more effective because CBD is really great for anxiety and THC in a dose that's too high for you can absolutely cause anxiety. So you want to be really mindful of that. You know, what I tell people is less is more when it comes to THC. Use the least amount that you need to get the effects that you're looking for. But, you know, as we've said, you have to be clear on what effects you're looking for so that you know when you've attained them. And taking notes is crucial. Like, I got this product from this store. This is what it smelled like. This is how much I used, how long it took to set in. This was my experience. And, like, write it all down. I know it's boring and it's a bit of a pain in the ass, but, like, that's going to be way more reliable for you than going to some random bud tender and being like, yo dude, what's going to like get me out of my head and into my body for sex. They're going to be like, how could they even begin to make that recommendation? For you? The analogy that just occurred to me is like, you would not walk up to someone at a sex shop, like an employee at a sex shop and be like, what's the best toy for orgasm in this store? Right? Like I couldn't begin to tell you what the best toy for you for orgasm is. Like, how could I possibly guess? I don't even know what your general configuration is. Like, I don't fucking know. So, so I encourage people to think of that absurdity. Like when they go to ask a bud tender or me, like what the best strain for sex is like, Like, I can't tell you that. Do you think the first step is maybe trying to sample small amounts of different things and see what it is that works? Absolutely. Yeah. Sampling small amounts. And really what I would do is if you have a couple of friends who are also new and curious or you and your partner, maybe like go in together, like everybody get a gram and then you all just share because a gram is plenty for like up to, you know, four or five people, depending on how much you're using. So it it would be more cost effective to kind of do it as a group. And then you can kind of make a game of it. Like, oh, how'd you like that one? What does this one do for you? Like, and it's neat to see how different the effects can be from person to person based on your tolerance, your body chemistry, your mindset and the setting in which you're consuming, like all of those things impact your experience. And if you do it as a friend group, like it's going to be way more cost effective. That was just a bit of my episode about cannabis with Ashley Manta. You can discover more about cannabis and sexuality at ashleymanta.com. Let's move on and get personal with Charlie and Arian Williams of Sex Because as we talk about BDSM and their own kinky relationship. Joining me on today's episode is an amazing duo, Charlie and Arian Williams of Sex Because. These two have degrees in psychology, clinical mental health, and over 30 years of direct care of clinical experience as psychotherapists. They also specialize in PTSD, sexual trauma, as well as intimacy and relationship therapy. And they recently came out with their book, Fifty Shades of Maybe, A Loving Intro to Kink Possible. Welcome, Charlie and Arian. Thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you. 
Thank I love you. that intro. I know. That was great. I feel so important right now. <laughs> <laughs> you both openly talk about your experiences um, and the fact that you have a, a dominant submissive relationship. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your journey into BDSM? The interesting thing about it is that I started off, I found a relationship right in, during undergrad, I met someone uh, and it wasn't the healthiest relationship. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I was still navigating my way towards health and uh, it was in Colorado. I won't give too many specifics in case that individual's listening, but we all know it wasn't healthy. There's a lot of things about it that weren't, but I did, I was able to take something from that and realize that maybe I wasn't the traditional sex that I was taught. I think I discovered a long time ago that whatever my parents were teaching me, that this is the way you have sex. This is the way you have a relationship. These are the traditional roles in which you need to be in. I'd grown up in church and I discovered that I didn't believe a lot of the things that I was learning. And BDSM gave me an opportunity, learning some things about kink gave me an opportunity to structure a relationship in the way that I'd like to. Even though that relationship wasn't healthy, I found aspects of it that were exhilarating. They were intoxicating. So it was kind of trying because I knew the relationship wasn't healthy, but I also knew that I had turn-ons that I couldn't explain. Mm -hmm. And I would say for me, I had dominant-like, like like a dominant-like personality, Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that was my safe spot. Mm-hmm. But the pornography that I watch was very much about the submissive role. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they weren't computing in my mind. Yeah. And then when I met my daddy here, also my husband, a love of my life, I wanted to be his submissive. I yeah. wanted to be his bottom. What's so strange about that is the fact that she wasn't anybody's bottom. I mean, she had worked her way from foster care and uh, six, seven, eight years old. She had been her mom had left her and for 10 years she kind of wandered around from house to house with family members and she worked her way to college and worked her way to grad school and did the whole thing so when i met her she was this she is still but she was an incredibly fierce woman that didn't take shit from anybody and when she came to me and she said hey look i really like this kind of porn but she liked porn that involved losing control and we started talking about that and i i liked doing being in that role Mm-hmm. which I discovered was rather submissive for a top as well. Thank you, firstly, for sharing that with us. I really yeah. do appreciate that. Do you feel that maybe people who are used to being in dominant roles, whether it's professionally or just maybe in their personal lives, that they tend during you know BDSM experiences to want to be in that submissive role? Mm-hmm. It's really common yeah. to, when you're in control all the time and you have so much responsibility to crave that brain break, yeah, I like this. You said brain break because it really is. Mm-hmm. I yes. watched Erin all day long. She would uh, she would manage seventy five therapists that worked at our clinic, and she would be the boss lady all day long, doing payroll, going over notes, dealing with the audits, all kinds of things. And then I would watch her come home, and she'd want to do just the opposite. Mm-hmm. She'd want to set up something, and she would set up the parameters. But I'd watch her want to just sit back and have things happen to her instead of making things happen. There's a lot of pressure, especially in our society with the roles, with the gender roles that we can have, especially in the States. There's a lot of pressure for, for especially women to be this masculine version of themselves or whatever. I hate to throw that word out that way, but you know what I'm saying. This top version all the time. And she wanted to be a bottom. Instead of having to prove something all day, she was able to come home, I think. And Well, that, that goes with the misconception that submission is weak. 
it's got to be a struggle because, you know, when I first saw her, I remember kneeling in front of her when she said she wanted to be a submissive. I kneeled in front of her and I said, I want to be your top. I want to be your dominant. I want to be your daddy. And uh, then I, I made a list of things that I would do for my submissive. And I remember her being a little shocked that she I was, said. I was shocked because I thought, this is not what I had in my mind. I had no idea. Like, I, I knew that I wanted to feel something as being a submissive. But I had no idea that we would actually serve each other. Yeah. Yes. It was, it was complicated. I mean, it, it went to great details like making coffee for her in the morning and running her bath, picking her up and putting her in the bath. And we do that every morning. We did that this morning. Uh, being really consistent, because the one thing that I did know about her relationship with people prior and my relationship with prior, my relationship prior to is that the thing that we lacked was consistency. And the first thing that we needed to make sure we took care of before we talked about any kind of power exchange is we needed to make sure that we had a consistent relationship that had quite a bit of integrity or all the integrity we could have in our relationship. Which created or helped the foundation of trust. Yes. Because it's all about trust. Why do you think other people have gravitated towards BDSM? Maybe in your practice, you've encountered people who are into kink. I know you guys are kink-friendly uh, practitioners. We would find clients that would come to us and they'd say, I don't know why I enjoy power exchange. I've dealt with trauma. I've dealt with sexual trauma. I've dealt with this. I've dealt with that. Why do I enjoy this? And the first thing we tell them is, you sharing that doesn't tell us enough. Mm -hmm. But the trust aspect of this type of relationship is something that can be healing. Right. Absolutely. And also the trust that they have to have in you to be able to be vulnerable with you and talk about their traumas. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's empowerment when you choose to, it's your choice. Mm -hmm. So it's empowering that this is my choice to surrender yes. or have the responsibility to, to take care of somebody else. Yeah. And yes. they allow this to happen. They do. And they we, want it to happen. They desire this. One thing that we discovered a long time ago is that the very thing that hurts you is the very thing that heals you. Typically, people in relationships are the things that hurt you. <laughs> people in relationships are the things that will heal you, too. So healthy versions of those are what our clients are typically looking for. And when they find it, we watch the healing occur. And, so, and BDSM is all about the relationship yes. of power exchange that requires yeah. trust and vulnerability, like you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And something that we see you champion all the time. <laughs> oh, I do. Thank you. Thank you for championing my championing. <laughs> and you're right. Those are so fundamental and they're so important. And um, that is also, in my opinion, a misconception of BDSM. A lot of people who are not, who've never tried it before, they see BDSM as being something that is done to somebody else and not that exchange of power. And uh, like Ariane was saying before, as as far as a big misconception that being submissive means that you don't have power. It's not like that. Not at all. Mm -hmm. Not at all. I definitely feel more powerful uh, because for me, it is empowering mm -hmm. uh, to, I don't know, this, this relationship is empowering to serve him is empowering. And I feel strength in serving him. I think a misconception is that there's the top you're in control. Hearing has planned everything that we do. Okay. She said parameters again. She's uh, using that word again uh, on, on what we're going to do, the times we're going to do it, how we're going to do it. And what I do is I have to get creative enough to make a scene. And in turn, that scene has to be pleasing to her. So I may be a top and I can be a very dominant top when I want to be. And it's pretty often. Mm -hmm. uh, I have some great guidance because I try to listen to everything she has to say. And I have to have the integrity that goes along with it because what happens is she, if, 
if I don't have integrity, she'll check out of it. She has enough self-esteem to check out of this relationship right. at any time. BDSM can be therapeutic. I'm not saying BDSM is therapy. I'm, they're, they're two different things. But do you feel personally that BDSM can be therapeutic for some people? We've spoken about this before, and you know, it definitely can be therapeutic. It, like we mentioned before, it, it can be healing. Well, a healthy power exchange relationship, you have to have respect for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have to establish boundaries. Mm-hmm. And an unhealthy person typically does not have healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they usually attract healthy partners. I mean, unhealthy partners. We gravitate towards people on the same emotional plane. Meaning, if we're unhealthy, we typically attract unhealthy people. If we're healthy, we typically... And now that's putting it on a real simple spectrum there. It really is on a much larger spectrum. Yes. But a lot of the people in the BDSM community will say things like, uh, your past trauma has nothing to do with BDSM. Problem is, everything that we go through has something to do with us today. You know, our arousal network is, it could be uh, rooted in the fact that our mom wore high heels when we were eight and we found that pretty, really cool. Uh, we don't know. It's really complex. But the great thing about BDSM is that anytime you get into a healthy, trusting relationship, it's healing. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons that people go to 12-step groups is because they feel like they can go into a 12-step group and they can tell somebody something and it won't be shared to someone else. So it gives them a new version of a relationship, a new version of an old thing. So they're able to redefine in their head what this looks like and they're able to heal. Because really what happens in our lives is that we typically get hurt by one person. We end up letting that one person define what everyone else looks like. <laughs> and this is the problem that this is a solution that BDSM, I think, can solve when it comes to a a good, healthy relationship, a healthy power exchange relationship, but it can also create new problems in a negative way. So getting the BDSM, getting in the kink at the right time is something that people should probably discuss a little bit more. Because if you're healthy again, this could be a great experience because you know when to pull out if it's not working for you. But if you're unhealthy, you might, as a bottom, might find a top that's really a dick and not a dominant. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And then it could be, instead of a healthy power exchange, it could be an abuse of power because the top will not understand or respect your boundaries. Being in a healthy, dominant, submissive relationship, master-slave relationship, uh, however people want to define it for themselves, can be very... Very, very therapeutic for some people. Yeah. The most broken moments that we have, we're going to have broken people around us and we're going to learn how to communicate with each other in a way that was different than what we'd seen before. But for us to communicate differently, we had to be different people and the hurting people we were before too as well. Yes. And it took some time to yeah, trust each other in these roles. Like some people think, oh, okay, I'm going to submit to you and this is going to happen like that. And maybe for some people it happens that way. For most people, however, it is... Like any relationship, it's something you build. As you just heard, kink relationships can often be misunderstood. Find out more about Charlie and Arian and the services they offer at sexbecause.com. So our last segment of 2019 is with one of my favorite couples in the lifestyle, Tara Rose and James of Sex Uninterrupted. Listen as we talk about how to have an orgy. So we have a sexcellent show for you today on Seek, Discover, Create. Joining me, Lexi Silver, are my guests, Tara and James from Sex Uninterrupted, one of the sexiest podcasts around. Tara and James are passionate, spiritual, and a very intimate couple and always looking to explore and find new adventures. In addition to their weekly podcast, they host local events, write articles and reviews, and share information about non-monogamy and the swinger lifestyle and inspire people to embrace their sexuality and awaken their inner sexual being. I 
invited them to join me today for this in-depth episode because they also believe in demystifying the stigma surrounding the swinger lifestyle community and non-monogamy. And that includes what it's like to be part of an orgy. So I'm excited to have both of you here with me today. Welcome, Tara and James. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to record this. Yes. (laughs) One hell of an intro. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So what I love about both of you is how open you are and you really are into exactly what I said, debunking all of those stigmas about what it is to be a swinger or an erotic dater or, you know, a libertine, whatever word people choose to use these days. And there are lots of misconceptions about orgies. And one of those is that you have to be within the erotic lifestyle in order to enjoy an orgy, or you need to be part of a couple to have group sex. So who has orgies? Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) We hope so. But people who are comfortable with it. Yeah. And that people who want to experience it, I think. I mean, it's not just couples. There's definitely singles. Tons of singles. Singles are makeup like parts of it like but you could even consider a gangbang technically as an orgy if there's multiple people technically having sex you don't have to be a couple you don't have to be a single you could be a couple and you don't have to be in the swinger lifestyle to try group sex and i think that well it goes back to like my my favorite line that i like to say the swinger lifestyle can be achieved by everybody but it's not for everybody Mm, that's very true to each their own exactly So do I need to have had a threesome first before graduating to group sex? Is it like different levels of experience or can I just kind of go head first into an orgy? And I say I, I'm kind of saying you and speaking about my audience in general. These are the kinds of questions I get via email and on social media. So, Well, we, yeah. we've talked about it. I think it wouldn't hurt to have a threesome first and just experience what it's like to have more than one other person in the bedroom with you. Mm-hmm. But like, it's not... Necessary. It just might help you to understand more of what it's like to juggle multiple people at once or multiple body parts. I'll say this as a man for sure. That is something that needs to be discussed because it like we like as a man needs to be discussed. And needs well needs to be discussed about the point of the fact the matter is is that at thirteen years old we as men, most men and I'm hoping most men, um have wanted to have a threesome with two women but we never actually thought about the point of actually having to please two women. You don't have to have a threesome to have an orgy, but it does give you a better understanding of multiple parts and body parts and holes and boobies and dicks. (laughs) (laughs) What you said before was important about learning how to please two women at once in the situation of having, uh, you know, a man being in a, a threesome with two other women. And the idea of having to please so many partners, if that's something that you're doing or wanting to make sure everyone is having a good experience is a massive part of group sex and any experience that you have with, well, any sexual experience, really, you always want to make sure mm-hmm. partners having a good time. Yeah, we want it to be consensual across all parties and everybody. And that's why we call it, you know, consensual non-monogamy because it's like, we want everybody to be consenting. And it kind of brings me back to the point when we, um, I don't know, can't remember who, what club it was, but they would do gangbang nights. And the girls would be in certain colored rooms and they would have little bracelets, right? And No, this was something I read online. Oh, okay. Anyways, yeah. So this is a party idea. It was, was I'm with you. I'm going down this path. But it, what for me was, it was that all these women had different colored rooms and they would give out glow sticks of the color of that room. Mm-hmm. 
And they would go around the room and talk with all the people that are involved, all the guys and say, okay, you get my color or you don't get my color. And only those guys with that certain color can go into that room. So now you already have the pretext of what you want to have happen. Now you're inviting the people that you want to have in there and they understand the the reasons why they're coming into that room is because they're offering whatever that needs to be. And that kind of goes to the whole point of like, have your conversations beforehand. And if you're bisexual or not bisexual, it's like, you know, have that conversation and people usually respect that especially because there are lots of heterosexual people in this lifestyle and there's lots of bisexual people. It's just all about communicating that. That bracelet slash glow stick idea is actually a very interesting way to communicate something without actually having to have a discussion about it. I I think it takes a lot of pressure off of the woman choosing, right? And feeling bad because a lot of women feel bad when they have to say no. And yeah. And one, but one of the great things about being in the lifestyle or really just in general is you should be able to say no and not have to justify yourself anyway. If you don't want to be with someone, whether it's what we, you know, in an orgy situation or before you just say, no, you don't, you don't want to do it. And you don't have to say, I, it's because I'm not attracted to you or anything like that. You just say, no. Yeah. But think about it this way. Now, if you're organizing an orgy and each couple had a specific color and that was their color that they only wanted to play with in that orgy. Now you're setting up literally without having to go through those awkward conversations of when you're having sex with somebody to ask those questions. Because we always like to say you can't necessarily give consent when you're in the middle of a scene. Mm-hmm. So if you gave that consent beforehand and say, these are my colors, these are the people that I want to play with. Well, checking in is yeah. still important. Absolutely. You need to do like, can I touch you? Yes. Yeah. But I, but I know what you mean. Like the major, like the the initiation of it, like, you know, you can touch me in the first place kind of thing is, yeah. yeah. And I'm going to th- be thinking about this the next time I have an orgy. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know if it works because yeah. I'm interested. I will. I will report back. <laughs> so who are these people that we're having an orgy with? Where do you find these people who are open-minded, who are down for group sex? I think... It's been kind of a roller coaster for us trying to find our tribe. When we first started out in the lifestyle, we were like looking on Craigslist and we didn't really understand that there is such a sense of community, especially where we live. There's a huge community. And it wasn't until we got invited to a house party and kind of found more people that were like us looking for friendships as well as sex that we were able to really start exploring orgies. Cause before that we didn't really have many orgy experiences. No, it was more well, just we, one-on-one dates with couples that we found on Craigslist. Well, mm-hmm. So I think the first few times we got in an orgy situation, it was more of, we were like out at a club or out dancing with kind of a group of swingers, like maybe anywhere from like 10 to 15. And then somebody's like, Hey, do you want to come back to our house? There's going to be a few of us going. And you know, everyone's like, well, who's going? And so they'll say, oh, well, we asked blah, blah, blah. And, and I think that it kind of works between the people that making sure that whoever's organizing it is detailing to everybody who's going to be there so yeah. that they can make the choice whether they want to attend or not. Because yeah. again, mm-hmm. there's always people either on one side or the other that you may not want to play with. But it kind of goes back to the whole thing of like, why not have the bracelet thing about who you want to play with beforehand? Well, but it also prepares you as a couple to have that conversation of, okay, they invited so-and-so back. I'm not okay with playing with them. So we know as a couple then to have that conversation before going to that house. Should we go to that house? Should we participate? Can we say no? Are we in the mindset to say no? And then make that choice to go back there. 
Um, and then there's been a few that we've organized and usually it's kind of like a, par- a party situation too. Like it was your birthday and we, but those were all friends. And I think exactly. Back it's always the- kind of friends. It's not yeah, really random. Oh, like, interesting. I had a bit of a different situation. Really? Is it that with friends? Yeah, for sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely divulge that a little bit, okay. uh, <laughs> a little bit later. We've learned as we've gone to make sure we're putting ourselves in the right position. You know, you're asking the right questions and you're making sure that everybody's comfortable. And if somebody's not feeling comfortable, it's like how to kind of segue into just not doing anything or how to not like how to communicate all this stuff. And I think yeah. it's kind of grown for us. And that definitely makes a huge difference when you're able to have that communication without really ruining the moment. Well, and it also creates the environment that you're looking to create. Right. And then everybody's now like talking about it and it's creating like almost an anticipation of the multiple boobies and vaginas. And- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love my boobies, but um, yeah, like it's kind of, but you're creating this environment where everybody is now on the same page. That's kind of, yeah, what we experience now, I would say, with like having so many people involved. And sometimes there is like a few new people that come in too. And usually they're invited by somebody that you already know. And so you kind of are on the same wavelength. Yeah, 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 exactly. And yeah, it's so hot. And I think that's interesting because you were talking before about how, now that you're planning orgies, you make sure that people are meshing together. So you already get a feel for the kind of people uh, that you're inviting. Maybe they're what they like sexually, if they're more aggressive, non-aggressive, things that they're into and kind of make sure their personalities are working with each other. So you're not just throwing a random bunch of people together. That yeah. really helps with the vibe. It does hugely. And it helps you get things started too and initiated it's not like you have to make it happen it's kind of just organically sure culminates culminates yes yes my best advice is root chats yeah oh i like that yeah even if it's not like an orgy per se that's happening if there's like a group of us that are going out we try and make a a group chat and now you can see who's vibing who's not who's working that and group chats because we had this one where we used to go to like big events and kind of like raves and parties and like big stage events and we do them with like this big group of people you can easily start figuring out who vibes with who and who's meshing. And then you create another group chat with like the eight of the 25 people that are in there and go eight or 10 or 12. And I think a lot of orgies come from house parties. And I think because house parties are usually invited of like your closer friends and some potential newbies mixed in like you had. And I think that that kind of starts developing the, yeah, like, you know, we vibed with them. So usually you're going to get a pretty yeah. good feel and a pretty good vibe from the same people that you end up hanging out with. Because we, again, are not in it for just having sex. We'd rather, like, develop a relationship and develop, like, a friendship, like, where the sex becomes a cherry on the top. And if you can develop enough friendships, now you're going to have an orgy because it's just yeah. all going to happen, right? Because like, they're all friends. And once they become more friends and friends and friends and friends and friends of friends, as we like to always say, it just becomes this <laughs> group of people where you no longer have to like worry about the ins and outs. It's more about like making sure that everybody is receiving pleasure because everybody's friends, right? And where the sex becomes the cherry on top. 
If you enjoyed my chat with Tara and James, check out their podcast and more at sexuninterrupted.com. So that's it for this week's, I mean, this year's episode. My lectural friends, thank you as always for listening. Keep up to date with my podcast and what I'm up to at LexiSilver.com and on social media at LexiSilver. That's Lexi with an I, Silver with a Y. And don't forget that you can learn more about sex, health, and relationships as you seek yourself, discover together, and create moments at SDC.com. Use my promo code 7070 to get two months free at SDC and try out the world's largest dating platform for yourself. Tune in Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America's Variety Channel for my next show. And you can always get my podcast episodes on demand whenever you want them on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Music. Thanks for joining me, Lexi Silver, on Seek, Discover, Create. Until next time, Happy New Year, and stay lectual, people. Bye. We appreciate you joining us on Seek, Discover, Create, presented by SDC.com. Please join your host, Lexi Silver, on another erotic journey next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, may you enjoy exploring your sexuality. 